we're seeing areas like inner city Detroit, um, Brooklyn that have been hit really, really hard and Queens um, by uh, the coronavirus so far. And so it definitely seems like African-Americans and Latino populations have been disproportionately affected. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing the unsheltered populations going in at very late advanced stages of COVID. And so how many people did they come in contact with before they entered the ER? Patients who are in enclosed areas and close contacts, whether they're in prisons, incarcerated, or whether they're meat plaquing plants, are just at higher risk of transmitting infection to one another. Um, and so anything we can do as a society to try to reduce um, close contact um, is so important. And so for me, you know, working at the County Medical Society is how do I take my passion for helping people around the world to my local level, um, to my neighborhood, um, and how do we do good here? Amish and Nancy, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Do you mind Thank just you taking a second? Thank yeah. Thank you. Do you mind just taking a second to introduce each other, um, uh, one another's work, and just to kind of talk about yourself and just a brief kind of encapsulation of, of your history and, and what you do and why you got involved. Yeah, I'm happy to go first. So my name is Amish Dave. I'm a physician out in Seattle. I'm a rheumatologist and I'm on the board of the King County Medical Society uh, Board of Trustees. I serve as the chair of the Public Health Committee um, and I am passionate about a lot of different things from reducing gun violence in our communities in Washington state to thinking about how we screen kids for lead poisoning to how we um, can get people health insurance. Um, and then lately thinking a lot about the coronavirus and its impact on my patients and our larger community. Awesome. Great. Nancy? So I'm Nancy Belcher and I'm the CEO for King County Medical Society. I have a PhD in biochemistry and spent many years working as a research scientist in oncology, then was a professor and realized that the scientists and the doctors in the community that I was working in weren't being heard. And so I went back and I got a master's in administration and started working on the behalf of scientists, recovering scientists like myself and physicians to try and amplify the voices of physicians. And that's exactly what King County Medical Society does. And our latest causes that we've been looking at, like Amish mentioned, are focused on the coronavirus. But before the pandemic, we were doing a lot of work on um, injury prevention, with regards to gun violence and also lead poisoning and to trying to increase the awareness that that's still an issue. Awesome. So can you, can I know as with obviously both of you, um, maybe, uh, maybe Amish, you can just set some of the stage can, in, in kind of the context of what is, in your perspective, what is at stake and if you uh, if you're involved with maybe any institutions that you want to you know have a disclaimer about your rep what you're representing what your opinions are representing I don't know if you want to say that as well but basically the question is can you kind of help people understand what's at stake right now and why is it so important to pay attention to because I think people are myself included bombarded with um, headlines and news yeah. and a lot of it is can induce a sense of overwhelming panic and just kind of like fatigue, headline fatigue. So maybe you can kind of help people cut through some of the noise and just give us a direction from your perspective. 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm speaking today um, in my own individual capacity and also a little bit about my work as public health chair for King County Medical Society. So I think that in general, um, you know, we as a medical society are really invested in how do we protect our membership and our membership are primarily physicians, but we also recognize that physicians don't work in a sterile environment, they also work with other healthcare providers, um, and they're also constantly um, working with the public, with our patients and under other individuals. So our goal as a medical society uh, for King County Medical Society is to think about how we're going to protect the people of Washington State, and um, particularly how are we adapting to the needs of our physicians and our healthcare providers. So right now, a lot of our uh, physician members are of course, anxious, as is a lot of the public, about everything they're seeing with coronavirus. Um, coronavirus is impacting everyone's lives in so many different ways. It's led to um, decreases in the number of patients who are coming to clinic, um, a hold or cancellation of many elective surgeries, um, and it's led to major shortages in personal protective equipment um, for physicians and for clinics and hospitals across the country. And so, we're here to kind of talk a little bit about what we're trying to do to improve um, the current situation in our own little way. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if you want to, Nancy, if you want to jump in there and just add kind of what you're concerned about or what maybe. Um, well, I, th I think the general public doesn't have a great understanding of what it means to be a doctor today as compared to say, the old TV shows from the 60s, and it showed a doctor in his, most mostly his, sometimes her practice. Right. Uh, now, you know, of course, it's about an equal ratio of men to women. What we're seeing more and more is um, we're seeing employed physicians, which means that they work for a large hospital system. So in Seattle, that would be Swedish or UW, or I could name a whole bunch of other large organizations that employ doctors, and those are called employed physicians. And there's very few independent solo practitioners in and around Seattle. There's more in the more rural areas, but with the advent of coronavirus and people not going in to see their physicians and a decrease in telehealth equipment, the, their revenues are dropping precipitously and there are independent practitioners that are going out of business every week. And that's a real concern in Seattle and the region, of course, but mostly in rural communities where those are the people, those are the physicians that are seeing some of the most at-risk in-need populations. Yeah. And when, you, when you're talking about at-need populations, this is I just kind of roll with it. Um, one thing that I'm concerned about and looking for more data on is how class and race play into the the coronavirus coronavirus pandemic, and looking at how that is shaping uh, the landscape that we see right now, and maybe what is and isn't being talked about. So I don't know if either of you want have anything interesting that you that you kind of want to point out or your own observations. Yeah, so I think that, you know, in terms of the health side, we're seeing that people with what we call more comorbidities, so more medical conditions, are at higher risk of um, dying or having major adverse outcomes, like becoming intubated um, from the coronavirus uh, infection. And we're also seeing that in the United States, it's urban areas that have really been affected 
first. And those are areas where we see more minorities. And indeed, um, even though there's poverty in rural areas and suburban areas, there can definitely be some severe poverty in, uh, in cities themselves. So that's where we're seeing areas like inner city Detroit, um, Brooklyn, that have been hit really, really hard, and Queens um, by uh, the coronavirus so far. And so it definitely seems like African Americans and Latino populations have been disproportionately affected. And also just from what we see in the news, um, you know, I was just reading today about the incredible unemployment numbers amongst Latino individuals um, who, you know, I was reading something like up to 60% of Latinos might be unemployed right now or at risk for losing their job. And so this is a virus that has certainly affected people of color significantly um, and also at the same time um, is affecting people um, in their jobs, in their lives, in their worries as well. Yeah, and I would agree that if the population has an increased, uh, well, they lose more jobs, then they lose more health insurance. And so they can't mm. go to the doctor, even if they suspect they might have something wrong with them. And the, then the other population that we haven't talked about yet would be the uh, homeless, the non-sheltered. And right. that population already on on regular terms, doesn't go to the doctor. Uh, but now with the pandemic, even if they have symptoms, they wouldn't even know where to begin to go. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing the unsheltered populations going in at very late advanced stages of COVID. And so how many people did they come in contact with before they entered the ER? So the, the, um, the homeless population is well it's just going crazy yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm over in los angeles right now and it's definitely been a huge concern something that i've been thinking about obviously even before this it was it's almost like everything that you were already concerned about and you know looking for ways of organizing ways of what you know approaching the issue right. through activism and you know social change and stuff like that well one seeing... of the things we thought would be helpful would be to provide ppe for not just the people that were working in the food banks or that kind of thing for the unsheltered but also for the people that didn't have homes themselves and while the people that were working in the shelters were really grateful and wanted more and there's an endless need for ppe not just in the hospitals, but in the shelters and the clinics. What they were sharing with us was that they could distribute the PPEs, but the population that, that they've seen probably wouldn't wear them. Okay. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't wear them based on what kind of, uh, where does that kind of uh, um, observation and, come and from? And this isn't me. This is, this is the people that I've been talking to. They, they say that they feel like they've already got so many problems that, that's that's sort of the least of them it's just a, not a high priority right just, food and shelter are just already so much higher than a mask right yeah i could i could see that so one one other thing i'm not sure there's there's so many directions to go in i'll just kind of try and go through each of them just to see what kind of insights both you have but one thing is is the prison population so incarcerated people i feel like are i i I'm worried that there is a tendency to think that, oh, well, they're incarcerated. Um, they, you know, they, we're not going to take care of them because they're on punishment, basically. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's a part of their punishment is, 
is to contract maybe COVID or X, Y, and Z forms of, you know, of, of logic. So I'm just curious if either of you know of any insight or have what, know um, how people are even dealt with medi- yeah, medically. Yeah, so we have a lobbyist. So King County Medical Society has a lobbyist. His name is James Parabello, and he's great. And James has been working closely with the uh, ACLU on this topic on our behalf. And I have to say that Washington is a little more progressive than other states. And so when I say we really have to amplify this problem, the response I'm getting, not from our lobbyists, but from others is, well, actually Washington is doing okay, which front page news of the Seattle Times would say otherwise today as there's a a lawsuit right now for um, not letting people that are within six months of release just go or changing the, um, the terms for specific crimes. And so we're on it, but relative to other states, we're, we're not terrible. How's that for an answer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, even just any insights, I know it's hard to like have a definite answer for these things. Um, before we move on from that, um, Amish, did you have any anything you wanted to say on that? I just want to make sure I didn't yeah. kind of skip out. So I, I would just say that, it, um, you know, uh, speaking personally um, and looking at uh, the news, we know that uh, patients who are in enclosed areas and close contacts, whether they're in prisons, incarcerated, or whether they're meat placking plants, are just at higher risk of transmitting infection to one another. Um, and so anything we can do as a society to try to reduce um, close contact um, is so important. And so I hope that, you know, local officials are taking that into account and they recognize that this, tr- this country has a long tradition and indeed legal tradition of ensuring that individuals who are incarcerated have equal access to healthcare and that just because they're incarcerated doesn't mean that um, their health their health is less important at this point in time. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so very very powerful stuff because I'm also wondering about how from a practitioner's point of view or from you know, anyone in the medical field, how even like undocumented workers are treated and how, you know, I I don't know if either of you have any experience with that or what that looks like on the ground for people who are maybe, maybe they're afraid to seek help because it will create a whole series of issues. Um, I don't know if either of you have an idea, any insight to that. Well, I'll just say that, you know, we're fortunate in our county in King County that we have programs like the Project Access Program, which mm-hmm. allows for counties um, in the United States to sign up um, to be able to provide uh, um, health insurance uh, for pa- patients who are undocumented. And so in general, I haven't heard of this being as big of an issue in King County, potentially as other parts of the country that don't um, sign in up for the Project Access. But of course, on a, on a regular basis, patients who are undocumented are scared about, um, you know, disclosing too much personal information. They worry about their financial situation. Um, And I can imagine that this time when so many people are unemployed or underemployed, this has to be a terrifying time for people to not have access to income or access to insurance um, Mm -hmm. if they are undocumented. Yeah. And sorry, don't mind me. I'm going to take some notes because some of these things are new. And I'll, I'll try to link, uh, put some links, but if there's any 
for anyone who might be listening and like they want to tell somebody about Project Access, mm-hmm. do you know and where that they was should started, go? Or? That was started in King County Medical Society uh, for Washington State. That was started within our society. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. If, I mean, do you, is there any more you want to say on that or should we kind of? Uh, um, no. I think I think I'll leave it at that for now, but we might circle okay. back. Yeah. Well, okay. So maybe maybe the both of you could talk about maybe the myths that are maybe just kind of clarify what it's like to be a practitioner. And maybe I mean, there's a lot of people, or maybe your advice to people to, you know, I feel like as far as their perception of what it's really like versus what your people are being told it's like in the news, you know what I mean? Whether it's from what equipment you're supposed to be wearing to what the public's supposed to be wearing or what they should and shouldn't do, maybe what's effective, are bandanas effective, stuff like that. I don't know if that's an interesting route to go down for both of you. It seems like it could be useful. Well, I want to highlight a few things. So I want to say, you know, we've been, um, King County Medical Society has really been engaged in trying to make sure that uh, the public is active about what's going on with coronavirus right now. And we're seeing a few things. We're saying every part of the country has different needs at any one moment um, for their hospitals and clinics. So we're encouraging people to reach out to their clinics and hospitals um, and ask them, you know, what are your needs right now? Where can you help? Um, You know, some uh, clinics and hospitals really need funds right now to be able to buy personal protective equipment. Some are really lacking in instruments for telecommunications. And so we've been really involved in obtaining uh, headphones and webcams for a lot of the clinics so that they can have more of their patients be able to stay at home to do their clinic visits instead of having to come into a hospital. Um, That makes patients feel more secure. It makes healthcare providers often feel more secure. Um, And then we're also trying to focus on a couple of other things that maybe haven't been as pointed out. So for example, we have a massive shortage of blood in the country right now. Um, And so a lot of people might not know, but a lot of blood donation sites are very close to college campuses. So young people often donate blood. They might or might not um, make a small amount of money from their blood donation. With a lot of colleges out of session right now and um, young people at home, there's a huge lack of blood supply And this is concerning for a lot of things. One is you obviously, we need blood for any sort of trauma or accidents or injuries. Patients on chemotherapy or with infections need blood. Women who are delivering, um, who are at higher risk for hemorrhaging um, need blood. Um, And and, um, blood is so important for um, so many other purposes. And so we want to just, we want to encourage people who um, are able to to look up where they can donate blood in their local uh, sites. Um, A lot of blood donation centers, including in Washington State, we've been working with Northwest Bloodworks, and they are scheduling people to give blood. So it's a super safe thing to do, um, and they're only allowing a few people to go in at a time. Um, And then I would say, like, in terms of a few other things that you brought up, Jared, so... Mm -hmm. um, You know, I think that in general, we're encouraging people to stay home. But then again, 
you know, you have to go be able to go get food or get groceries as well. So wherever you can, wearing a mask um, is something that I personally do um, when I go out to the grocery store or even uh, to the gas station. Um, I just think it's the more we learn about the virus, the more we realize that um, how sick you get is potentially a factor of how exposed you are and that wearing a mask um, really reduces your um, ability to transmit the virus, um, um, we hope. Right. And, and, and when you're out, uh, personally, when you go to the grocery store and stuff like that, this is kind of a micro scale detail, but do you use the self-checkout? And if you do, do or do you use the, do you go to a, like a checkout with a person or what, what is kind of, I know these things are, it's not like there's an official, like yeah. one is better than the other, but because there are, there are so many, there's like at least three ways I can think of the delivery, the self-checkout and the, like you go down for a person and then maybe anyone who's growing their own food has a different option, but yeah, well, I, sorry, go ahead, Amish. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll say that I've done all three. Um, right. and so I've definitely done a lot of food deliveries to support local restaurants who are often hurting right now. Um, I've definitely tried self-checkout and I'll find that, you know, I'm just not as efficient going through there. <laughs> um, right. And then I've done the regular line. Um, I, I've also found that some grocery stores are really on, allowing you to do one way or another. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, I think what I heard that made the most sense to me was number one, decrease the number of times you go to the grocery store. Right. Mm -hmm. So just, decreased frequency of exposure potential. And then the shopping cart is always overlooked, right? So I'm the weirdo that takes the wipes into the store with me and wipes down the whole cart, um, <laughs> right. especially the handles. Um, so yes, the biology professor is coming out in me. Um, right. And then I will just wait for somebody to finish the in the aisle and then I'll go. And I don't make a big deal out of it. I had somebody yell at me the other day saying, I'm waiting for you to pass. I, j I just take my time when I'm at the store. There's no hurry. But I also shop for a week or more. That's So my shopping has changed. Okay. I just go less frequently. I wipe down the cart. And then when I go to checkout, um, I put the items in my cart after the checker, who's usually gloved. Um, right puts them in and, and you can wipe them down. Like again, with the wipes that I bring in, if I feel like something maybe got picked up a lot of times, like somebody was looking over the fruit or something, I'll just wipe it down. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've been, I've been also curious about that. Cause there's so many, you hear about the general idea of like, you know, st stay out, but the, the actual tactics I think and strategies are really important on the small scale from like, you're talking about wiping down the fruit and everything mm -hmm. like that. Cause Maybe you buy some apples or, you know, fruits that people tend to touch before they buy just to right. make sure it's ripe, like an avocado. Mm -hmm. And I've always been thinking, well, what are you supposed to do if you touch an avocado? Should you sterilize it and then put it in your kitchen? Well, you the know, other what? thing you can do is if you have something that you think potentially like the avocado uh, got picked up a lot is just leave it in the bag for 24 hours. I know they say three days that it can sit, but usually 24 hours will probably give it enough time and then wipe it down. If, you, if you're if you really that worried that it's been touched, just right. unless it's perishable, then you can just put it in a refrigerator and let it sit for a little bit. Okay. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, these are, I think these are obviously, uh, it's kind of going into the weeds, but at this point, I feel like the majority of, 
of our indoor or, you know, quarantine lives are kind of in the weeds. And these are the yeah. things that people are thinking about from just the keyboards. Maybe you get home and you touch your keyboard and then you have to figure out all the way to your keys, you know what I mean? Things mm -hmm. like that. So, mm -hmm. but, um, okay. So going on, can you rewind a little bit and, and just talk about the King Society Medical Center and just kind of like why, what kind of, what was the path that led both of you into that and why was it important? Well, Amish preceded me. So you go first, Amish. Okay. Sure. So I think that it, it's important for all individuals to feel like they have a voice. And um, I think for, for medical societies in general, it allows for physicians to be able to come together, um, to be able to uh, pursue larger professional goals and, and society, goals for society. So for me, it was, um, I joined King County Medical Society out of a desire to be able to make my community a better place. Um, I recognize that there were a lot of issues that I'm very passionate about from um, preventing gun violence, especially in the wake of Newtown and Pulse and so many giant, um, horrible shooting tragedies in the United States. Um, to getting more involved in how do we um, how do we pr improve access um, to medical care? How do we improve insurance access? How do we support our homeless populations in Seattle? And so that's kind of the path that took me to my county medical society. I'm, um, we have a long history of uh, being a medical society that's very passionate about public health that was involved in kind of the promotion and the founding of public health Seattle King County, um, as well as a lot of other wonderful um, initiatives in Washington State. Um, and so I, I saw myself as, you know, naturally drawn to joining our medical society. Right. And what were you what were you doing before then? I'm just curious, like, can you paint us a picture of kind of yeah. what you were involved in before then or kind of that that moment of of kind of where you turned and you went in that direction? Yeah. So I, I, I work with the medical society um, on the board, but it's not my daytime job. So this is something I do as a passion uh, to get involved right. outside. But, you know, in my career, I've, I've kind of had a passion for human rights for a long time. I've worked with um, the Humanitarian Action Foundation on um, promoting uh, social justice issues in the U.S. and Europe. Um, I've spent some time in Bulgaria working in an orphanage. I've spent some time in Uganda working at a hospital out there. And so for me, you know, working at the County Medical Society is how do I take my passion for helping people around the world to my local level? Um, to my neighborhood, um, and how do we do good here? Right. Yeah. What, well, so, what were you doing in in Uganda and Bulgaria? Is that was, is that where you said? Yeah. Yeah. So I've spent some time um, in Bulgaria working in orphanage in the Perin region in southwestern Bulgaria, um, yeah. and then also taking coursework on xenophobia in Eastern Europe. And then um, in Uganda, I was fortunate to work with, um, uh, to ha uh, have a spot as a Johnson & Johnson Global Health Fellow during my time at Stanford. And so I had a chance to work um, in the hospital and be able to teach medical students and residents at Mulago Hospital, one of the larger hospitals in Uganda. Wow, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it was um, a great experience. <laughs> yeah. Nancy, do you want to talk about your kind of journey, uh, you know, how you, your experience, I know you both have so much experience that 
Um, feel free to say as much or as little as you want, just to kind of give us a portrait of of your of you as a person a little bit of where your trajectory oh, went. Okay. Um, so I always thought that I would be in science. I knew that I couldn't really be around people that were ill, which would make it difficult to be a physician, but I loved the science. And so I got a PhD in biochemistry and thought that I would be happy as a professor and uh, worked at Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center for many years and uh, was a professor as well and realized that the silos that are put up within the research and the medical community are staggering and they are slowing the, our ability to come up with uh, appropriate treatment and also just methods of communicating with one another are completely shut down. And so I decided that I wanted to try and figure out a way that regardless of who you worked for, you would have uh, the ability to find out what one another was doing. And that sounds sort of 30,000 foot level and it, and it is. Um, and so back in the Bush administration, a bunch of my friends that were doing cutting edge research were stopped from doing their research because they were using fetal cells. And I realized that the elected officials, at least at the time, really had no insight into what it meant to do research. They didn't understand the science. And that says nothing about today's administration. I, I'm not going to go there. But um, they really didn't understand science and the policies that they were creating around what would and wouldn't be funded were based on false information. And so I went back and I got a master's degree in administration in order to impact policy. So my focus was policy. And so I worked for a federal senator, I worked for governors, I worked for the mayor, and it was enlightening work. But uh, I think Amish would testify that I, I move rather quickly and government does not. And so, and that's not a criticism, it's just a reality. And so I realized that I was going to need to find some other way to impact policy. And it was very serendipitous that this job came along because what it's enabling me to do is say to doctors and other healthcare workers, what are you doing? What are you working on? Let's create a method whereby you all can speak to one another. So beyond the board of trustees at King County Medical Society, we all also have smaller societies. And one society, for example, is the Pacific Northwest Transplant Society. And we just got it back up and running after decades of it not being active at all. And we've had these Zoom conferences where there's doctors in Hawaii, California, Alaska, all around able to finally talk to one another about what their protocols are specifically during COVID for transplanting lungs, for example, or do kids get transplants during COVID? And these are all questions that seem really simplistic, but these were siloed individuals that didn't have an opportunity to even know one another, let alone speak to one another. Yeah. Wow. So I'm curious what, for somebody who, who are the people that you find most want to get involved with the King County Medical Society? Like, what does that person look like that you're kind of like, come and join us? Like, who, who can you, is there a portrait of someone who's like, maybe their interests or their concerns have a commonality, you know? Yeah, I, I would say that honestly, it tends to be a little mix of everybody. So we have all different types of physicians on King County Medical Society. Um, 
there are conservatives, there are more progressive liberal types on the board. There are people in independent practice. There are physicians who are on larger um, group practices, but mostly they're physicians and then medical students who are uh, um, within the King County Medical Society. There are some retired physicians who choose to stay involved because they're so passionate about um, having a voice or being engaged in what's happening with the, the rapidly changing healthcare world. Um, and then I would say that, you know, even though our membership is mainly physicians, we partner with anyone who's interested in partnering with us. So whether that's nurses, whether that's other community organizations, um, right now, for example, we partner with uh, our public health Seattle King County colleagues on thinking about lead screening. We partner with a, a couple dozen organizations that are involved in reducing gun violence. Um, and so in general, if there's any way in which you think that physicians in our area um, can get involved um, in a project that you're involved with, feel free to reach out to our County Medical Society. We really want to be a voice for physicians. And we really, because we have such a diverse membership, we can almost always find someone who's passionate about almost any topic. And so we try really hard to, um, to be able to engage with anybody. Okay. Yeah, and, and a, a perfect example of that is um, Amish brought the issue of lead poisoning and the decreased awareness of lead poisoning. I mean, people think that it's sort of a 1970s topic for some reason and that it's all better now or that Seattle or... LA wouldn't have a problem with lead poisoning because we don't have those really old homes that you see on the East Coast. And that's not true because the paint that has lead in it, it was only, they stopped manufacturing it in 79. So um, homes that were built in before 79 all have lead in them at some level. And so in an effort to hear what the communities that are most impacted by lead poisoning Unfortunately, they're the immigrant populations, they're the low-income populations, they're some of the populations that are the hardest to get to as far as communication. And so in an effort to hear what they had to say, we are partnering with the Somali Health Board and the Horn of Africa group, and it has been amazing for b both ways, right? So some of the things that we share with them about how physicians do their work are jaw dropping to them. They had no idea. And then some of the things that they share with us about their living conditions and how they wound up where they did are jaw dropping to us. And so it's this amazing uh, sort, of, sort of serendipity in the room of how do we identify ways that we can best make your community aware of this threat. Yeah. So, uh, so do every does every major city in the U.S. have a medical society, or and how long have they been around? If if that is a because I I mean and possibly other people may who listen who are listening might not even be familiar with the idea of a medical society. So I just am curious what the history of that is in the U.S. Amish, did you belong to one before King County? Yeah, I w I was part of the Massachusetts Medical Society, and before that. Um, the Chicago Medical Society. And uh, so, yeah, so medical societies, um, most major urban areas at least have a medical society that's county-based. Um, and so, for example, Chicago, I'm sure Los Angeles um, and um, 
Boston and um, um, Seattle have uh, medical societies that are county-based. And then every state has a state medical society. And in general, um, a lot of the medical societies work with a a larger national organization, in particular the American Medical Association. Um, And so the King County Medical Society coordinates with our Washington State Medical Association, and we then coordinate um, delegates from the state level to the national level um, to try to change policy. Um, some county medical societies are much more active and reach out to the public much more often than other county medical societies. Um, but in general, most major cities have a medical society. Some medical societies are much more focused on the business aspects of medical care. So thinking about reimbursement um, and how physicians and clinics and hospitals are paid um, by insurances and by the state um, that the medical society is part of. And then other medical societies like ours are much more progressive. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, this is a little bit of a transition, but I'm curious if you, if both of you have kind of one, if you could outline some of the the broader challenges that face the medical, uh, medical practice, in the U.S. right now, and maybe abroad, but at least from uh, you know the U.S. perspective right now, like what are the concrete like challenges that you see that the U.S. is going to face? Maybe before COVID hit, and then now that it is hit, what are how has that changed those things? Yeah, and then the follow up to that, uh, you know, yeah, maybe we can just outline that the challenges that are happening right now. So I can say a few things. So I think that. You know, even before coronavirus hit, we knew that there was a shortage of physicians um, in the United States. In particular, our population, like so many other countries in the world, um, is rapidly aging. And we need more physicians to take care of people who are older and have more comorbidities who are sicker. Um, And so we've always had a shortage and we've kind of relied a lot on um, patients come, or I'm sorry, uh, healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, other uh, specialists coming from outside countries, um, immigrants to the United States. And so coronavirus makes it all more challenging in the sense that um, we need more physicians and healthcare workers than ever before. Um, global travel has really stopped and it'll, it remains to be seen how long the pandemic goes on for and whether that makes it more difficult for uh, people from other countries to move to the United States um, to be able to, uh, you know, g- apply for residencies and fellowships and and ultimately to start work in the United States. Um, this is a huge issue. Um, and then I think it, it, we also know that rural areas um, are much more underserved in general. And so, and also some inner city areas are extremely underserved. Um, and so all of this uh, with the pandemic is just exacerbating some of those tensions. You know, I'm, I'm curious to see what the long-term effects of the pandemic end up being. Um, we all are curious about, you know, whether it encourages people to go in healthcare or whether some people decide that this is not a career that they want to choose, that it's too risky um, and that they'd rather do something else. So I think we're going to see um, those repercussions years to come. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And and I agree 100% with everything that Amish said. The only thing I think I would add is um, the tension that was in existence before the pandemic. And then, of course, now it's just exploded between physicians and the administration. And so 
about 20 years ago, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, about 20 years ago, the ratio of administrators to physician was three administrators to one physician. It's about 10 to one now. And so you have a whole lot of levels of authority telling physicians what they can and cannot do. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, at a level that I have a problem and just suppressing my rage, is that doctors are not allowed to speak. Um, yeah. So Why I, is that? Can you, can you kind of outline? I just, sorry to interrupt you. I just kind yeah, of tend no. to do that. But uh, two so things, could you- Initially with the pandemic, when- we had some of the our member physicians. So the the first diagnosis was here. The first death was here in uh, Kirkland, Washington, which is just over across the water. Right. And so some of our members were at that hospital, had a relationship with those those patients, and yet were not allowed to speak. And, um, the, and what kind of things are they are they kind of being blocked from saying? Like what's what's off limit? Or well, what I think are the I think the concern was that that they might share something that would disclose who that patient was, and then their HIPAA rights were violated. And I I can see the concern, but at the same time, the doctors are private citizens; they have a right to speak for themselves. There is the there there's a series of amendments that allow you to speak, and so right. I really had a lot of trouble. We had reach it people reaching out to us from the New York Times, the Washington Post, you name it, that wanted to talk to the doctors about what their experiences were and not just to sort of self-congratulate, but also to share the experience so that other physicians that were going to get that next wave, right? So there's a sort of a wave going across the country uh, on the East Coast and then the West Coast and then sort of going inwards and saying, look, what might you be looking for? What could you expect? And that was the intent from the physicians of what they wanted to share and yet they weren't able to. And so what, what we're seeing is sort of a groundswell of physicians saying, we need to unify in some way. We need to not only have a unified voice like we talked about earlier in the program where doctors aren't siloed anymore, that they actually have an opportunity to sort of cross-pollinate, if you will, right? So I work at this hospital system, you work at that hospital system, but we have the same concerns, so let's work together. And together they're stronger, right? And so the same goes for the practice of medicine. So not just their... Uh, their outside interests, but the practice of medicine. Um, and Amish, I don't know if you want to talk to that at all. Yeah, so I, <laughs> um, I think what I'll just say is that I think that one of the important th reasons why we have county medical societies is to allow physicians to be able to, in a sense, speak collectively. Um, and, and also to have their individual voices heard. Um, I think that's so important. Um, we all recognize that we... Oops, I see Nancy's... Uh, Sorry, I'm running out of uh, juice here. Sorry. No, okay. that's fine. Feel free to do your thing. I'll, I'll just start. So I'll say that um, I, I think one of the important things about having a county medical society is it allows for... Um, individual physicians' voices to be heard and then to be amplified. Um, I, I think we all recognize that as that physicians oftentimes um, 
especially if they work in larger hospitals and institutions, um, you know, they still want to have an opportunity to be um, involved in their communities and to, and to have a separate voice, their own individual voice um, heard. Right. And that's an important reason why I joined King County Medical Society also is so that I felt my voice could be my own authentic voice um, right. and not necessarily the voice of someone else. Yeah, that's that's powerful stuff. And uh, one thing that uh, it's a tangent, but I, I'm it's the question's kind of been there as we've talked about, you know, possibly like incarcerated people and you know immigrant populations and and everything. I'm curious, is there within the physicians or maybe within the patients, do you see a demand for like women's reproductive justice and how that's being affected during the COVID crisis? Um, I'm going to let Nancy speak to that. <laughs> okay. Well, that was definitely one of our top concerns before the pandemic. And what we're seeing now is that uh, everything's sort of getting pushed under the rug, right? Even kids, yeah. uh, well, well, first year wellness check. What do you call that, Amisha? I can't even remember. Wellness. They're missing their vaccines in their first six months of life because their parents are afraid to take them. So some of these things that we would assume would go on as normal, they're just not. And so it was a huge issue for us. We were working hard on maintaining the rights that the women have in Washington State because, again, Washington's doing okay, okay, not great in that area. We fear what might happen down the road if we don't stay on top of it with our current administration. Um, but again, right now the focus has been on our foundation. So we have a community right. foundation that uh, is our charitable arm and that with the help of Amish and others has been going gangbusters. We've provided tens of thousands of masks, uh, gowns, and telehealth equipment that has enabled larger groups of people to access healthcare. We also worked really hard with our lobbyists to get the um, parity for telehealth in insurance payments. So before, Amish, was it about 40% that you would get reimbursed for a telehealth visit? 40% of, as compared to an office visit? Is Amish there? I'm still here, but I think we're going a Can little bit Can you restart? Off. Oh, yeah. I think we might be veering a little bit off topic. Um, and I think like the, the question, I, I think for the broader national audience, of like what reimbursement and stuff is probably less mm -hmm. interesting or less important. Mm -hmm. So I don't want us to go into the nitty gritty in Washington state. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sorry, can you, can you give the question again? So Jared, I mean, I think yeah. what I would say is that in general, like in, um, for, we just want people to be able to get the medical care um, that they otherwise would get. And we recognize that right now is a scary time for a lot of different patients. Um, but it's important that for patients who still have cancer, they, you know, they, they still have cancer and they need to be able to speak with their oncologist, be able to get to chemotherapy um, appointments, be able to get to radiation therapy. Um, we want patients who are having severe abdominal pain to go to the emergency room. We want to make sure that people who need medical care are still getting medical care and aren't averting it um, right. because of fears of coronavirus right now. Um, and so I think that's important as we look at data coming around from out from around the world, including from China, um, we're seeing that the rates of death from cardiovascular disease, cancer, 
are expected to rise during this time also because people are delaying access to medical care. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So these wow. these things that we're calling um, uh, elective might turn into emergency surgeries, right? So, or emergency visits. So still go see your practitioner or at least give them a call and, and touch base and, and make sure you're doing okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you both so much. I know I'm kind of going into, I just want to make sure we cover things that I know that people are interested in. And I'm curious if you have advice for people who are aspiring, say there's young people who might be listening, who are thinking, you know, wow, I'm really, I've met a lot of people who are not met uh, physically anymore, but during this pandemic, a lot of people I know that have said, I, I, you know, I'm doing either research or I'm an activist, I'm an artist, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an engineer, or whatever I'm doing, how can I get more involved? Like, what are the things we're learning that this whole pandemic has exposed? You know, I, I hate to center everything around the pandemic, but right now, at least, sure. I think yeah. it, it will it will shape a lot of discourse. So I'm curious if either of you or both of you have advice to someone who maybe is aspiring even to go into medical practice, what fields are most needed or... You know, does that question make sense? Yeah. What advice would you give them? You know, so so I think, you know, the biggest thing I would say is, um, uh, so so I'd say a few things. One is, um, this is not a time to panic. This is a time to be proactive, though. And so a lot of people are at home and anxious. Um, and it's important to reach out to your primary care doctor, your providers, if you're feeling a lot of anxiety or a lot of stress at this time, um, to be able to help with that. Um, for those people who are looking for ways to help, I think, again, like reaching out to your clinics and your hospitals, asking what their specific needs are, asking your local level, like your mayor's office, what their needs are. Um, every community is a little bit different. Some communities are allowing people to be able to register, to take temperatures of individuals who are entering um, various clinics or they need individuals to volunteer at homeless shelters right now. Um, other areas um, really don't need that need, but they have um, other things that they're looking for, including people who can put a call out for personal protective equipment for doctors and healthcare workers in general. Um, and then I would say like, you know, I think that being a physician is an amazing thing. I think during this time of a pandemic, even more so because I find that I'm able to um, still take care of individuals. I, I, you know, being an essential worker, you know, you've never felt more essential than you are at this time as a physician. You feel like you can um, still prescribe medications for your patients. You can help people who are anxious. You can just be a healer and talk to people on the phone or via televideo, um, which is actually really exciting. Um, And, you know, we're still seeing patients um, who are new and return patients um, in my clinic. Um, and, and, and it's really a nice time to be able to have um, really deep conversations with individuals of what, the, what their goals are in life as well. So I would say that this is also a time for people to take um, a moment to think about, you know, like to be able to pause because how many, we're always running around so much. I know myself too. So this is a great time to pause and think about, you know, what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? And if you want to be a physician, great. We need more physicians um, in the United States in general. It's a long road, but it's worth it. I think so in the end. Yeah. Nancy, do you have anything to add there? What's that? 
Do you have anything you were about to add there? Um, Any yeah, advice think, for people? Yeah, I think that uh, what I would probably say is that there's a lot of ways that you can be involved that don't necessarily mean you're a physician. And so as a professor, oftentimes I would have students say, oh, I really love medicine, but I don't I don't like being around sick people, which was always my issue. And you can be a research scientist. You can be an administrator in a hospital. You can be a volunteer. There's so many different ways to be involved in the medical profession without having MD after your name. And so I always encourage students to think a not that there's anything wrong with physicians, don't get me wrong, I'm married to one, but, but if that's not your thing, that doesn't mean that the medical profession is, is outside of your realm. I think the other thing I would say about getting involved right now is that typically the county websites will have links and resources for people to get involved. I know ours does. And um, so that's public health, Seattle, King County. And so there would be the same in your area. And like Amish said, sometimes there's more opportunities than in certain areas than in others. Uh, right now in King County, they're trying to do the tracking system where they're trying to get volunteers to track the infections, right? So I'm forgetting the name of what they're calling the tracking. Amish, do you remember? Uh, I think they're doing case tracking. Just case tracking. And so they need, you know, a thousand volunteers to, to do that. Um, I know they're, they're getting it up to speed in New York and they're looking to get it up to speed in Seattle. And I'm sure they're doing the same thing in LA. So that's one thing. Another thing, of course, is uh, donating money to different causes like people who are making PPE. And then we've had an amazing outreach from the Washington State Hospitality Association that restaurants that we worry about going under are still donating food to the frontline people. And so yesterday we had a whole bunch of food donations that the, the frontline people were ecstatic, right? So even though you're a food producer and working in a restaurant and you don't feel like you're really in the medical world, you can help the medical world. So we also have a relationship with Airbnb where they're providing free housing for people that don't feel that it's safe to go home right now because maybe oh, they wow, had an exposure. So there's a lot of different ways that people are being involved without actively working in the medical world. Yeah. And I would just yeah. add to that, like, I think even like this is a really good time to just send a short thank you email message, a handwritten note to like the healthcare providers that you care about, like whether it's your primary care doctor or your dentist or your nurse or someone you know in your neighborhood who's a healthcare provider because it's obviously a scary time for a lot of people. Some people are going to work and they feel like they might be putting themselves at increased risk. Some people aren't working like a lot of dentist's office and it's a really financially scary time right now. So that little, that thank you letter that might seem so um, insignificant in another time, you know, is so meaningful right now. It gives people so much um, extra oomph. I know for me, when I get a, a note from one of my patients, it's just so meaningful. I start collecting them and, you know, I, I start rereading them on the bad days and it's just, it's a nice feeling. So that's, you know, something small, not everyone has money that they can give or the time to be able to do everything. Um, but everyone has a few minutes to write a short note. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and great. even, even for us on our Facebook page, people, 
will write just a really brief note saying, thank you for all you're doing. And we read all those messages. We see that we feel the gratitude. So even if, like Amish said, even if they can't donate, just giving us a heart emoji or just saying, thank you. It's huge. (laughs) Makes a big difference. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I think people are trying, are, are wanting to find ways to socially distance while distancing their appreciation. So that's, those are great ideas, especially mm-hmm. through all the kind of confusion and overwhelming, yeah. you know, amount of information out there. Just as we wrap yeah. up, um, I want to ask you both to, to, can you give, can you paint us a picture of your, of, of one way that things could unfold as we, as of today, we find ourselves in a, in a place where Georgia is, is reopening um, and, you know, we've got, that's happening and what, what it kind of does a possible future look like to you? Uh, you know, I like to ask people like what, uh, you know, your ability to imagine the way that things could unfold, you know, what's a kind of a strategy for that and what does it look like for, for people on the ground, if they could do the best they could do, you know what I mean? Well, I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, in general, we're all learning about coronavirus as it's occurring in real time. And I like to take things one day at a time. Um, I would generally say that, you know, we should listen to our, our scientific community and to our physicians and public health officials about best practices. Um, and I can't comment on what Georgia is doing right now, but I'll just say that I'm, I feel like in Washington state, we've been doing such a good job with social distancing. I'm really proud of our state um, and our city and our county for the efforts that they've been trying to do um, to reduce the risk for our patients. And so I'm, I'm going to just speak for, our, for myself as a King County Medical Society member, but yeah. I think that having a community of people working together um, to listen to the scientists, to be able to work with the Department of Health, to work with the State Medical Society, to communicate with doctors, and to provide the best practice public health information is so important. This has been a challenging time for everybody from the World Health Organization, the CDC, to provide the best possible information. It's constantly changing. And I feel really blessed that we have local officials who've been trying so hard to keep on top of that information and to be able to route it to us. So in general, I would say that even though in Washington state, we can't control what's happening in other parts of the country, um, we have to constantly stay vigilant. We don't know how long this is going to last. This can last for months, maybe longer. And I'm hopeful, you know, we're seeing unprecedented um, scientific collaboration between companies, between national governments in many ways. I'm hopeful that we'll eventually see a vaccine or new antiviral medications that'll come out. But until then, we should really listen to our scientists and our public health community. Yeah. And before you yeah. close on that, do you mind, and we transition to Nancy, do you mind, is there anything in the medical, like biomedical technologies that have transformed? You mentioned one, which was just the like video chatting with patients. Um, but is there anything that's exciting you the most or that's challenging you the most about the way that technology is transforming the medical landscape? Yeah, I'll just say that like, you know, um, I'm so excited about telemedicine. It's so, it's actually really exciting to see, um, to see my patients on a, on a computer screen and know that they're feeling safe 
and I'm feeling safe about the whole encounter. Um, you know, it's always a little bit different. Everyone has a little bit of a different webcam or an audio system. Sometimes we hear some people better or like see some people better. I, I actually, I, I do miss like, you know, as a rheumatologist feeling people's joints, it's hard to actually tell whether someone has a lot of active inflammation over a computer screen. But I appreciate the fact that my patients feel secure and comfortable at home, that they're not having to pay for parking or having to do, you know, pay for the gas right now, um, when a lot of families have so much um, other stressors in their life that they're dealing with financially. And so I think this is one way in which technology has actually brought us closer to our patients, um, ironically, and allowed us um, to see people who live five or six hours away in real time and um, in a safe manner. And just to hold on that note a little longer, do you have any patients or know of anyone who has patients that use um, trackers that track heart rate variability resting heart rate, body temperature, stuff like that? Because I use one myself. I'm just curious if anyone does that kind of N equals one tracking to not to as, as empirical data, but as something yeah. to aid the process of maybe noting inflammation or anything like yeah. that. Well, I know that there's organizations like the Veterans Administration System for years has been working, for example, with patients with congestive heart failure to be able to track their weight. And if they feel like patients are picking up weight, then they're worried that their heart failure might not be as well controlled. And then they readjust the doses of their cardiac medications, including their diuretics, to help them to lose weight and also talk to them about dietary consumption of salt and other things that might be promoting water retention. And so I think that these, um, these sorts of biomedical technologies um, exist. We've had cardiac monitors, Holter monitors, Zio patches for a long time to look at what an individual's heart rate and rhythm are um, in real time. And that's captured by a lot of different clinics. Um, I think we're going to see more of this in the future. Awesome. Yeah. Nancy, do you have, I know we, we kind of, it took a minute to transition there. Oh yeah, no. Uh, um, you know, again, as a recovering scientist, I have a lot of concerns about sort of opening up the restrictions and again, don't know the details of what's going on in other states, but I, I will echo what Amish said that I am very grateful for the leadership in Washington state. We have a long way to go before we better understand this virus. It, we don't know for certain if you have gotten it, if you are going to be immune. We don't know if you are immune, how long that immunity might last. We don't know if you could have a recurrence and if that recurrence would be more or less than the initial uh, there are just so many things that we do not know. And then the vaccine, to be realistic, it won't be a one-time vaccine. There will probably be half a dozen, if not more, iterations of the vaccine before we get a really good one. And so we have to be able to track those vaccines and know who got what and who doesn't need a boost. So we have got so many questions left to be answered that the easing of the restrictions uh, makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the restrictions on basically on people being able to go out people leaving self, uh, isolation. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. So, uh, and that, I, I mean, obviously I don't want to displace any of my personal, 
um, opinions on to you all, but that's, that's what it seems like to me. It seems like a big, uh, if you're, if you know, I, I feel like any of the people in the medical industry have been advising not to, that we're not ready yet. So that seems like a big concern if we're going to trust the people that we, that are actually the experts in in this field for the things that they are actually advising us to do, (laughs) you know, that there are lives at stake. we're, We're trying to say on one hand, see your doctor if you need to. So go out and about, but don't go out and about for other things. And so people will push back and say, well, I thought you said I could go out and see my doctor. Why can't I go out and do this other thing? And so it's it's sort of like a priority list. What, what are your priorities? And so I saw a sign that said, you can't go on the beach unless you're exercising. Right. So yes, you can go on the beach, but only if you're exercising. (laughs) So it's really hard to identify where the boundaries are. And what is exercise is walking technically elevates your heart rate. So I mean, who knows? (laughs) Yeah. So everybody's got to do their best. It it comes right down to the individual, right? Wear your mask, stay six feet apart, just be reasonable. Right. And yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely go on about the kind of complicated social issues that that I do like to talk about but here I think we won't go too far into it but basically that there the there are mechanisms at play that have to do with power and the power behind who is advising and who is subsidizing the act of who's advi- you know who's advising the president on what decisions are being made and the fact that really at at its heart we talked about who's being affected by the coronavirus are the wor- our working class people, and especially people of color, these are not the concern of an administration that takes, you know, the perspective of billionaires and puts their interests in, uh, you know, on the top. Right. And so, then on top of that, you have the concern of people of color not wanting to wear the mask because they're fearful that it will give them the appearance of doing something wrong right so there were lots of articles about african-american men saying that they felt like they couldn't wear the mask because they would be perceived as a threat right so then even though we're asking people to wear the mask because of race tensions they can't even keep themselves safe right and i don't know if either of you have seen there's a little clip on Democracy Now. They showed they showed a clip of a guy in an interview with them who is who is actually a, a medical practitioner. He was out at his van, you know, and he was he was basically assaulted by the police just for being out and for being black on on mm. his own neighborhood street. So you kind of get the sense that this is just amplifying. That would have probably already happened, but now it's happening even more because there's this tension of control, there's confusion and chaos. Mm-hmm. So. Well, yeah, I mean, this has been such a great conversation. You both have been so insightful. I don't want to get lost, you know, in my own personal ramblings. Everyone else can hear that. I just want to ask you both the the last question I'd like to ask everybody. Is there anything that you're, you know, between one and three books that you're reading that you, that's, that's kind of bringing you joy right now or fascinating you during this time that you would like to just give a little bit of advice, uh, not advice, but just kind of that you would recommend to listeners? I mean, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, I've been kind of on a reading um, 
campaign, just trying to process uh, a lot of my own emotions through um, a lot of great literature. Um, you know, I think I finally picked up a copy of Annihilation of Caste by B.R. Ambedkar, who yeah. wrote the Indian Constitution um, and um, came oh, from um, what, what uh, is termed either um, a scheduled class and used to be called untouchables or the Harijan. Um, so the lowest strata of um, Indian society, people who have really been marginalized and treated poorly, um, and kind of writes uh, this, uh, this long speech um, for the Jat Talk um, conference in Lahore that never actually happened, but essentially a manifesto for rights for his people. Um, and it was really inspiring um, to me on what it means to be an activist. And then more of a fun note, I've been really getting into um, uh, Ferrante's uh, My Brilliant Friend series, and I'm really looking forward to watching the HBO series at some point. But um, what a beautiful um, depiction of Naples and Southern Italy and childhood friendship and what that means um, to be part of a community also. Um, so yeah, getting into very different types of literature right now. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And, and the Annihilation of Cast, um, that's also an amazing book. I, I Nancy, I probably didn't mention I'm, I'm working on a documentary about cast in Northern India. Oh. Um, cast and class and, and gender and stuff. But that is definitely really, I was only introduced to Ambedkar through the work of Arundhati Roy, who is one of my, you know, kind of hero idols, kind oh. of an activist, writer, author, uh, you know, you name it. Um, so yeah, to hear that is really great. That's fantastic. So, wow. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I'm kind of a geek documentary watcher. And so I exercise in mm -hmm. front of documentaries. And so the oh, last three yes. I saw were uh, the Hillary one on Hulu, which was exceptional, exceptionally long and also very good. Um, mm, I haven't seen uh, that yet. I'll have to give it a try. Yeah, it's a recent one. And then the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, which, of course, was fabulous. And then right. Margaret Atwood. So, Margaret Atwood, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. I will make sure to check those out mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah, is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you're just itching to talk about? Like, oh, why didn't we, we didn't touch on my, you know, favorite thing. What uh, did we not talk about, Amish? What did we gloss over? <laughs> yeah, I think we touched base on so many different topics um, today. Um, I don't, nothing's immediately striking me. But yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think I think what I would want to say is just a, a gratitude for all of the people that have helped us, um, Amish and and the King County Medical Society with our efforts. So some big companies that gave money and um, are donating telehealth equipment. Uh, we are able to distribute things to hospitals in need and for patients that we never would have been able to without their support. So thank you to them. Excellent. Well, Amish and Nancy, thank you so much for being thank on the show. Thank you. 